Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning and thank you for good songs that really speak to our heart and songs that, that are telling what, what has happening, happened in our lives, what is still happening in our lives, and songs that, that, are, that are showing us rather clearly what, what you're like. Thank you for that. Now, God, we come to the preaching of the Word and we ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us and give us understanding. God, we ask for uh, hearts that understand and eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. Father, we have much to be thankful for, yet with our gratitude, we feel the weight of this world, the burdens of life. We've gathered here today, God, that you and your very nature and character would be life to us. Breathe it into us, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, turn back in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're back to 1 Peter now. We took a break last week with it being Mother's Day, but now we're back to 1 Peter. Back to this great book that we've been in now for weeks. and <clears throat> We're... We're talking about a people who are suffering and a people who have been through persecution and people who are facing trials and afflictions. And Peter is writing to them, telling them to press on. And we've been in chapter 3 for a while where he is addressing what their conduct should be like in their hard times. I want you to hear from the outset that this is a sermon today on suffering. And please hear me clearly that Christians believe in suffering. We do not, do not, do not believe that Christians should not suffer. We do not believe that. Suffering happens to the people of God. Suffering happens to Christian people. If any Bible teacher anywhere tells you that because of your faith you should not suffer, they are wrong. They are misrepresenting our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered more than we do. Life has suffering to it. If you've lived, you've probably suffered. Today is about that. Today is about suffering. And Peter is writing to them to how they should be in the suffering. Okay? The Bible, God, is more concerned with how we handle our suffering than whether we're suffering or not suffering. I want to hear that again. God is more concerned with how you handle your suffering than whether you're suffering or not suffering. Okay, So we want to get a, a, a good taste of this. Usually it's not that hard to lay out scenarios of, of suffering. We know life to be hard. I think most people in the room would agree that, that life is hard. Just this week, I had a hard week and it was really not that hard compared to most people's hard weeks. I did three funerals this week. Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. The one on Friday was local right here in Fairdale. It was a suicide. It's tough to deal with a suicide. It's really tough for the family members to deal with that. It takes time. It's hard to go through the motions of a visitation and a funeral just days after it has happened. Totally caught off guard, unexpected, hard. And while I say it's hard to do that funeral, come on, that's hardly anything, right, to dealing, dealing with that, being in that family. 
Another one of the funerals I did was for a college student in our church whose grandmother had died. We did the funeral on Wednesday of this week, just five days ago, or maybe four days ago. And yet he woke up yesterday morning to find out that his other grandmother died. He lost both of his grandmothers within one week. Life's like that sometimes. That's not easy. Really, it's not fair, but life is like that. Life is hard. It keeps coming at us. And when you think, I can't take any more, it often becomes stronger. Many of you know that. And sometimes it's the difficulties of life or things like I've just said, which are maybe out of our control. It's just the way life goes. Sometimes life is hard because we've made bad decisions and and decisions have consequences. And that's even doubly hard because you're in a tough spot and you know that you brought that tough spot on you. That's a tough spot to be in. And then sometimes life is hard because people are treating you wrongly. That happens. Some of you may be here today and you're suffering. And you're suffering under the hands of other people. Maybe it's a, a neighbor, maybe it's bullying at school, maybe it's parents, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a boss, and they're being wrong to you, and you're having to live in the suffering. You say things like, they hate me, and I don't know why. I don't know if I want to be around them anymore. I don't know if I can take that anymore. I don't know if I want to live here, or I don't want to work there anymore. They are they're wrong to me. Suffering sometimes comes that way. Maybe you're here today and you have the blessing of life's pretty good. There's not really much suffering right now. And for that you should be really humble and very thankful and grateful that God has allowed you to be in a spot right now where there's no suffering. I don't want you to think it may not come. It could. I want you in all circumstances to know that Christ will be your strength. But for those times that we do suffer, And specifically, what Peter's talking about are those times when we do suffer for righteousness' sake, times when we're not doing anything wrong, and yet evil or or opposition, suffering is still coming at us. What should we be like? It's true, and you hear it all the time, that the world is watching Christians. This community so wants to see what really First Baptist Fairdale is like. What are the people like that attend here? What are you like when they see you at home or in the yard or at the ball field or this or that? What are we really like when it comes down to it? People aren't impressed with church attendance. They're impressed with hearts and deeds that flow from hearts. And so in our trials and afflictions, Peter wants us to hear, wants them to hear how they ought to be. Today, I have seven points, and since it normally takes me like an hour to get through three, I'm going to find a way to not take that long. But seven points today. Seven characteristics of Christians in hard times. Y'all ever heard the saying that tough times don't last, but tough people do? It's a good saying. May that be the case of the church of Jesus. May that be the case of of we Christians. Tough times don't last, but tough people do. 
Read with me, if you will, at 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Seven points, seven characteristics of Christians in hard times. Number one, Christians, please take notes if you can, Christians have an identity that is stronger than their suffering circumstances. Number one, Christians have an identity, a character, a, a, a something about them that is stronger than their circumstances that are of suffering. And you see this in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you. See, up, in, up until this point, all the way back to chapter 2, verse 12, he has been saying, keep your conduct this way in front of people. When people see your lives, conduct yourselves in this way. And then, and then he went through all of these different lists. He went through servants. He went through governments. And he went through emperors and supremes. He went through living under those people. In chapter 3, he goes through husbands and wives and families. He's dealing with all the different types of relationships we may have in the world. And he wants us to know how we should act with those relationships. He tries to cover everything. At verse 8, he just says, finally, everybody, anybody who dares to be a follower of Christ, anybody who is a believer in Jesus and a child of God, finally, all of you. And then he gives us these five characteristics. He's about to tell them how they should be in suffering, but, but before he starts to deal with how they should be in suffering, he wants them to hear five characteristics that they should have. The first is unity of mind. Folks, this is what the people of God must be united. And whatever it is that's causing divisions, get over it. Turn from it. Work through it. Deal with it. Pray with it. Repent. Humble yourselves. Strive. We must be united. This is the theme throughout Scripture. This is Jesus' great desire that His people would get unity. That all of the churches in Fairdale are not against each other. We are all working for the same cause. That everybody in this building that attends here is striving to make each other better. To point each other closer to Christ. Unity. In John chapter 17, we have the great passage of Jesus praying. Big, long chapter. The whole chapter is a prayer of Jesus right before He is to be crucified. And His prayer is, Father, my prayer for all of them, those that are in the world, those that are about to be saved, all of them, that they would be one. They would be united. They would all have the same heart. They would be focused, united in love towards You, God. And then He says that they would be one as me and You are one. The Father and Jesus. Jesus has a prayer that you and I would say above all else, 
unity. We want our church to be united. I've said it often to us. One of the great strengths of this church and one of the great strengths of our church moving forward, if we will move forward, is that we are going to humble ourselves before God, not let there be divisions, not let there be those who are bringing thorns, not let there be dissension, but we are striving to get along. People who are different from us, people who look different from us, people who act different from us, we are getting over all of our, our own little desires that we would be united. He says, finally, have unity of mind. Think the same way. Christ is Lord. And we want everybody to know Him. Secondly, sympathy is what the, the identity that is stronger than our circumstances. Sympathy. Christian people are to be sympathetic. We are not to see people and think the worst. We are, see, we are to see people and be sympathetic toward them. This week, the, or last week, the Courier-Journal released an article of a lady who has 11 children. She has birthed 11 children. And they were talking about how she needed help and how there aren't many avenues for her to get help. And as I liked the idea of them wanting to point that out, my heart was sad. Because you know as well as I know, there are a lot of people that read that article and think, she needs to stop having children. We're just not sympathetic, are we? A mom with kids that needs help. Instead of our hearts saying, how might we help her? How might somebody help her? We think, why does she keep having all those kids? We're not sympathetic. And you know that if you're not sympathetic, then nobody's really wanting to be close to you. That's just the truth. If you're judgmental towards people who need sympathy, then don't think anybody's quick to jump on your boat and join in with you in the purpose of life. That's just the way it is. If you're not sympathetic toward people, but instead you're looking down to them, then we are not like God. Don't you realize that as Jesus walked the earth, He could have looked down on every single one of us? Don't you realize that when Jesus looks into your little life and your dining room table, into your bank account, and your attitude, and the way you speak to your wife or to your children or your laziness, when Jesus looks into that, He could say, what is your problem? What's wrong with you? Why don't you get it together? He could, but He doesn't. He is sympathetic. The Lord is understanding and compassionate and slow to anger. And while He should have just said, He didn't. He was sympathetic toward us. And Peter says, be sympathetic. Have sympathy. Thirdly, brotherly love. This is the mark. This goes along with unity. That we are a people who know how to love people. That we've gathered here on a Sunday morning for one of the reasons is simply to be able to hug necks. That's why we're here. Now, there's other reasons why we're here, but one of the reasons we're here is to be able to see somebody you haven't seen since last Sunday. And just to say, man, how you doing? It's good to see you. Here's a hug. That's part of what we're about. That's why when, when, when somebody like you all or somebody else says, you know, I don't really go to church, I just watch it at home. I think, well, where's the brotherly love there? They ain't even thought about that. They form their own definitions of what Christianity looks like. Peter says have some brotherly love. Do you realize that there's some people that walked in here today that that hug is meaning the world to them? That handshake? That how you been? How can I help you? What's going on? How was the week? Hey, can I come by and see you? Been thinking about you? Hey, I know you've been going through it or I've been going through it. Or, hey, we need to catch up. I had somebody this morning say, man, it seems like forever since we've been able to talk or catch up or get together. Could we have lunch or dinner soon? It meant the world to me. They care. They care. They care about me. 
And just that conversation this morning meant so much to me. We, a mark of true Christians is that they have brotherly love. This is a theme throughout Peter. You read this short little book in five chapters, he says it over and over again. 122, 217, 4a, 5.14. These are different verses where he is emphasizing learn to love each other. Next, a tender heart. This goes along with being sympathetic, that we would be tender hearted. Again, we don't look at a situation and, and, and callousness or dryness or roughness as we look at it and we think, hmm, what can I do? What can I do? How can I help that? How can I help that situation? I was up at the ballpark just this past week, and they have this like ice slushy truck that pulls up, and kids can go buy a slushy out of it. And you, you just pay for the ice, and you get to go over there and get all the, uh, it's like a snow cone. And you can get all the syrups on your snow cone that you want. They leave it up to the kids to get their own. It's a pretty good deal. So we're standing over there eating our snow cone. Noah filled his entire cup up with just syrup. And it had a straw to it. Uh, but we look over and there's some kids, because the person that's working the truck can't even see it. And there's some kids that are over there like this to the syrup. Like, like a frat guy on a tap. The kids were with syrup. And I saw some people, some good folks say, I'll just go buy them one. Just out of their own heart said, I'll go buy them one. They walked over there and started pulling out their money trying to, trying to buy those kids one. They have, they have a tender heart. They see a situation, they think, I, I want to help them. They see, a, they see a, a lady and they say, I want, I want to help her. They see somebody hurting and they think, I, I want to help in that situation. This was the heart of Jesus. This is the characteristic of God's people. A tender heart. Ephesians 4.32, if you don't know this verse, you ought to. It says, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. What a great verse. Lastly, have a humble mind. Have a humble mind. Don't be prideful. Don't be arrogant. Think lower of yourself than you ought to. This was our model of Jesus, Philippians 2 tells us, that Jesus had humbled Himself below everybody. He made Himself lower than everybody, so He looked up. I said it a couple sermons ago. If you're below people, then you look up to people. If you're above people, listen, you look down on people. You better find a way to get low so that you can lift people up. If you've got a high view of yourself, you're looking down on people. You're looking down on people, there's not much unity, there's not much sympathy, brotherly love, not much of a tender heart. These are the characteristics that we should have before we even deal with suffering. That's point number one, that Christians have an identity that is stronger than their suffering circumstances. Point number two, Christians do not react defensively toward suffering, afflictions, and wrongdoing. We don't. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. He just says, don't. If they've been evil to you, then you don't be evil back. If they said something wrong about you, then you don't need to say anything wrong back. That is just a principle of Christianity. And Christians know that we don't do that. We don't react defensively. We don't need to. We don't need to defend ourselves. Just this week, I was with some college students and I reminded them, hey, get over it. We're not easily offended. Somebody says something about us, we don't need to get all worked up. Who cares? Just let it go. Christians are not easily offended. If you're easily offended, what's wrong with you? 
You got all this pride that they might hurt your feelings or somebody might think that way. A lot of the reason why we get hurt by things is because we think people might be thinking it might be true. I often love pro athletes and celebrities and how thick-skinned they've got to be because they hear so many different opinions about them. Everybody in the world's got negative opinions about them. They've got to just let it go. They've got to learn to figure out who they are and not let people's opinions bother them. Christians of all people should be this way. God loves us. And He loves us as we are the worst people in the world. Sinners against God. And He's forgiven us. He calls us the worst, loves us still, redeems us, makes us His own. Why does anybody else's insults upset us? I love when Charles Spurgeon said that if anybody insults you, don't retaliate because you are far worse than they already know. It's a great quote. We don't react that way. Just recently, you might have seen it on the news, there was a student from Boyce College who was preparing to do Christian ministry and he was a pizza delivery guy here in Louisville. And he was doing a delivery, I think, on his bicycle and he got jumped. They took his money and they injured him. I think they used a knife, if I'm right. They attacked him. And the news caught him in the hospital on his hospital bed. Him saying, I'm not mad at him. I forgive them. I'm not mad at them. I forgive them. Oh, some of y'all would have been so chomping at the bit to get out of that hospital. You're going to find them. Oh, you just wait. I'm going to find you. Come on. You don't want to find anybody. Not to do harm. Not to retaliate. I hope Jesus isn't waiting to retaliate on me for all my sins against Him. We don't want to be that way. We want to look like Jesus. Instead of reviling or repaying evil, it says that we're to bless. We're to bless people. It says bless means to speak well of, to to eulogize, to find ways to to build them up. We don't see the worst in people. We see the, the best in people. And even though they're attacking us, we want to bless them. Perhaps you've had a coworker that is rude to you, but you keep telling them, hey, good job, appreciate it, thank you. You find ways to be a a positive light there. Number two, Christians do not react defensively towards suffering, afflictions, and wrongdoing. We don't. Number three, Christians live life to the fullest because we know God. Man, I wish we talked about this more. Christians live life to the fullest. They enjoy life because we know God. And starting in verse 10... It's offset a little bit because he's quoting. It says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days. That's what we all desire. To love life and see good days. That's every one of us. And then he tells us how to do it. The Bible does describe what we want and then it prescribes how to get it. Keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. How we talk determines what our life is like so many times. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Then it says, because God sees us. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God is against those who are trying to do the wrong thing, and yet God is for those who by faith are trying to do the right thing. And this is what we know. We're trying to live life to the fullest. We're trying to be happy. We're trying to find joy, and we know that joy is found in God. And since we know that our sins are given, and there's no condemnation in the whole world, Romans 8.1, against us because of Jesus, we have joy. This is a quote, though, from Psalm 34. So if you can, turn to Psalm 34. I want to show it to you. I want to show you a few other things coming from Psalm 34. 
When somebody like Peter in the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, what does it tell us? It tells us that he too believes that the Old Testament is the Word of God. It tells us that Peter read the Bible. It tells us that Peter believed the Psalms. Peter thought that when he's talking to people A.D. after Christ who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus, that the Psalms should help them. I hope that you know that the next time you're having a bad day, turn and read the Psalms. That will pick you up. This, this week, I had a man in our church who's doing so well walking with the Lord. He sent me some Bible verses to encourage me before I went into those funerals. You know what he said? And it's unbelievable how good the Bible is. You know what he told me later on that week? He said, man, I wouldn't be where I'm at and doing what I'm doing and the perspective I have had I not started reading the Bible. He said, I've been watching those AD Bible movies on Sunday nights at home. I wouldn't have understood any of it had I not been reading the Bible as much as I have lately. The Bible and him reading it is like a bloom opening up in his life. His love for his children, his love for his community, his love for life, his enjoyment in life is exuberating now because the Word of God has opened that up. Psalm 34, the part that he's quoting starts at verse 12. And it goes on all the way to verse 16. But I want to show you a couple things. In Psalm 34, look at verse 8. Verse 8, it's a verse you know. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. See, in our suffering, we have to know what I said point one was, that before our suffering, we already have a character. We already have an identity. We have a God that we've tasted. A God that we know is good and He is for us. Now jump over in Psalm 34 to verse 19. Psalm 34 verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Folks, we know that afflictions come. I've already said that. Suffering comes. We know that. So when it comes, our hope is in God. We can trust Him. He is good. And He will deliver us. This too shall pass. I got a new CD by a man named KB and he says, tell the paralytic that he's going to run, tell breast cancer that it's going to end, or tell breast cancer that it won't win, and tell racism that it's going to end. This is what those who know God know, that one day these things are going to be gone. We'll be right with God in heaven. He says, and what He doesn't heal now, God will then. We have a perspective on God that puts everything in place. He is good. He's ours. He made us. And He has brought us to Himself. We are secure in Christ. Therefore, suffering now makes sense to us. And even though we're going through the suffering, we're willing to have joy still because we know Him. It's kind of like when I tell my kids to clean up the house or clean up their room or do this. They don't want to do it. Oh, it's going to take too long. I don't want to do it. There's too much. I hear all those excuses. As soon as you get it cleaned up, I'll give you some candy. We'll go outside and play. As soon as they know that something better is coming, reward's coming, they're all over it. It's kind of like going to work or school on Monday as compared to going to work or school on Friday, right? Friday, you're up, best outfit, ready to go, because in six hours, work and school's over with, and it's the weekend. Monday, you don't care, you didn't brush your hair, brush your teeth. Because <laughs> there's nothing to look forward to. You're just, jeez, it's Monday, I'm tired. When you know God, suffering is just for a little bit, just a little bit longer. Heaven's not that far away. God is near. His eyes are on us. He cares. When Christians are those who live life to the fullest, who enjoy life because we know God. Now, there's a whole world of people out there that are trying to tell you to live life to the fullest and enjoy life because life's too short or because life's good, but that doesn't work. 
And that's baloney, and don't believe that. Don't you dare tell it to the funerals that I did this week. That ain't helping them. Don't go in there with your t-shirt that says, life is good, and tell them, hey, you just pick your head up. That don't comfort anybody. It really doesn't. It'd break my heart if you told me that in the midst of my suffering and trials. I'd think, well, you're just a little bit higher than me, and I'm sorry that you've got it all good, but I don't right now. You tell somebody that God knows, and He cares, He's with them, He'll get them through it. He's a rock. Oh, that means something. That means something. Christians are those who know how to live life to the fullest and enjoy life because we know God. Listen to this quote from Jim Elliott, one of my absolute favorites. He was murdered as a young man in the jungle. He said, I have found that the most extravagant dreams of boyhood have not surpassed the great experience of being in the will of God. Some of y'all know that to be true. Being a Christian is just so good. God loves me. My perspective is there. That's point number three. Christians live life to the fullest because we know God. Number four, Christians do not always face suffering for doing good. I want to remind us of this. And this is what verse 13 says. It says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This is a reasonable question here from Peter. It's a good thought. Peter says, now wait a second. If you are zealous, I mean all out passionate about doing the right thing and doing good, you're not always going to face people who hate you. You know that. Many of y'all get a lot of credit and a lot of praise. There's some students sitting in the room right now who are really committed to being a good kid and being a good student and being a good teammate and doing the right thing. And all I hear from everybody is how great they are. That's a good thing. When you start doing the right thing, getting yourself in order, and there's no dirt on you, and you're living life the right way, and you've got a clean conscience, then a lot of times you're going to get some credit and some praise. And this is what Peter's reminding you. Like, who actually is going to harm you? He asks it in the form of a question. Who is going to harm you if you're zealous for doing what is good? In other words, stop being so defensive and thinking that people are against you. Start doing the right thing. Start being a blessing at work. Start being a part of the solution instead of part of the problem. And watch. You probably won't have as much opposition to you as you think. People probably like it if you're nice to them. There's a chance people may love you. There's a chance people will appreciate you. It's a good question. We don't always face suffering for doing good. Y'all hear about people who have victim mentality. They think that everything's against them. Everything's against them. Everybody's against them. Every situation's against them. That's not always true. You wake up and try to be the best one in your family contributing. Try to love somebody to death. Do what Jesus says and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and see if it doesn't get better. That rude neighbor, bake them a meal. Help them out. Start praying for them. Smile at them. Get the mail for them. Care for them. Do whatever you got to do and see if it goes a long way. Peter's reminding us this. And I think many of you know it. I think many of you are trying your hardest to focus on Christ and do well. Be the best person you can be and contribute to society. Be the, best church member here. be the best church member here. Be a blessing to your church and a blessing to your pastor. and Serve the community and do all of that. And you realize that God's blessing this. God is honoring me for honoring Him. He does that. 
Sometimes suffering comes, but not always. And that's what we need to remember. Number four, Christians do not always face suffering for doing good. Number five, Christians are ready to explain why we have hope. This is a challenge. I want to ask you if you're ready. Because Peter says we need to be. Christians are ready to explain why we have hope. You get an opportunity to to talk about your life. You get an opportunity to talk about while you're dancing in the rain or while you're smiling in the trials or while you're hopeful. Does the love of God in your hearts overflow? Does the forgiveness of sins come out? Does your kindness toward those people who are not expecting kindness because they're so down and out, does your kindness toward them cause them to ask, "Why, why are you being so nice to me? Don't you love it, Jesus, with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman? Jesus just asked her for a drink and she says, you're asking me for a drink? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. These social classes don't cross. You're asking me for a drink? And Jesus is like, yeah. I want to talk to you. I care about you. If anybody ever asks you for the hope that is in you, be ready and have an answer. Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, because sometimes it does, sometimes it does happen, you will be blessed. But don't have any fear of them and don't be troubled by the suffering. Okay, It shouldn't ruin your life. You have a perspective here. Don't be troubled by it. But here's what he says. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And folks, this is... This little statement right here, which is not one of my seven characteristics, is like the characteristic of all seven points. Christians are people who in their hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. There's not a day that we wake up late or get stuck in traffic or have rocks thrown at us or have somebody make fun of us, or have somebody talk bad about us or our kids or our work ethic. There's not a thing that we go through where it should not be in our minds. Christ. Christ is Lord. Christ is holy. Christ has suffered more than me. Christ suffered wrongly more than me. See, that's the whole point that makes all these other points make sense. If you're here today and you don't know Christ is holy, and you're not honoring Him in your heart, then these seven points don't make sense. You're going to walk out of here, and as soon as somebody cuts you off in traffic, you're going to road rage around them and try to fight them. Because you don't have Christ is holy in your heart. You're going to hear my points, and you're going to walk out of here and not care about unity. You're going to talk bad about somebody in the church. You're not going to be sympathetic. You're not going to brotherly love. No tender heart. You're not going to be humble. You're going to be arrogant. Because Christ is the one that makes all these make sense. I ask you here today that if you don't know Christ, if you're not a Christian, would you become one? Would you recalibrate all of life to Jesus as Lord? Would you take a step backward, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and say, I want to be a Christian. I want to live like Peter's talking about. I want the characteristics of my life to be unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humble mind. I want to be a child of God. If that's you today, then here at the end of the service in about 10 minutes, come. Come running. Say, Pastor Josh, I want to be saved. I want to be a Christian. I want to know that my sins are forgiven and I'm loved by God. I want to honor, I want to honor Christ in my heart. I want to think about Him everywhere I go. 
And because that can happen, he says in verse 15, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do you have any hope in you? Do you walk into situations saying, man, I hope they ask. I hope they ask. I was getting ready for one of these funerals this week and I was sitting down with the family and they didn't really say anything about God the whole time, which that happens a lot, not a big deal. So at the end I said, well, are y'all okay with me reading the Bible? And they're like, hmm. I was like, oh man, this might be hard to do a funeral without mentioning the Bible. And they said, well, I mean, like, what might you say? What a good question for a preacher. Now, if they'd asked somebody who doesn't really read the Bible, then they might have been stunned for a second. But, man, we've got hope in us. I said that God loves us. And He'll forgive us of our sins so that when we die, we'll be saved. We'll be right with Him. Yeah, we've got hope in us. And we should be chomping at the bit for somebody to ask us, why Why are you trying to walk the straight and narrow? Why why, Why don't you go and do the things that we often do? Why are you so nice to me? Why are you asking me for a drink of water? Why do you accept me and treat me like this? Nobody ever treats me like this. I got Jesus. I'm forgiven of my sins and He loves me. Christians are ready to explain why we have hope. Number six. Number six, Christians have a good and clear conscience. This is a challenge to us. Look at verse 17. Sorry, verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Christians, in their suffering, have a good and clear conscience. Do you know how freeing it is to have a good and clear conscience? Listen to me. Do you realize here today that most people are living with guilt and shame and worry and fear and anxiety? Most people in the world. Most people that you run into are are, are hoping that you don't get into a deep question and conversation with them. They aren't. Most people are, are hoping that you're not going to dare say, so, so how's that relationship going? You keeping it pure? You've been looking at porn lately? How's it going at home with your wife? You've been serving her? You treating her right? How you doing with your kids? You've been spending time with them? Are you loving all over them? They think you're the best dad ever? I remember one time years ago, I asked a preacher's son who was like six years old, what's dad like at home? I maybe should not have asked that. Hey, what's dad like at home? Oh, he's mad all the time. That's what the boy said. See, we don't like people to dig deep because our consciences often aren't cleansed, aren't clean. We're hiding things. We don't want y'all to get in. I've told y'all before about how all the young people put their phones face down because the alerts pop up on our phone. They're sitting there and all of a sudden this comes up and just guy after guy after guy after guy after guy texting all these girls. They want to hide that, so their phone's face down. You never know what these adults might see. I had a neighbor on the street that I hardly know said he took his daughter, who's a junior in high school, took her cell phone away from her, and she went ballistic. She went ballistic. Hiding things. 
And teenagers, it's one thing to go to church, it's another thing to love Jesus and have a clear conscience. Going to church don't get you to heaven and won't. You've got to know Jesus. Turn from your sins and love Him. But Christians have a good and clear conscience, it says. And that we're able to give an answer for the hope in us because in our suffering, we know that God is taking care of us. And it says that with our good conscience, the people who are being wronged to us, who are bringing the suffering upon us, will be put to shame. We are living so rightly that when they say things about us, they feel bad because they're saying things about us. It should not be easy for our community to trash the church. They should feel shame when they talk poorly about us because they know it's not true. But you know, often it's the opposite of that. They're trashing church people because church people don't have a clear conscience. They have a guilty conscience. Christians have a good and clear conscience. I want to ask you here today that you would do the hard work. And listen, none of us are too proud to not. So let's do it. Let's do the hard work of examining our consciences. Are you open with your children and open with your spouses? Are you open with your church family? I read an article this week that said we don't even have real relationships unless we have hard conversations. If we're not able to have hard conversations, then let's not act like we've got a relationship. Do you have a clean conscience? Most people are living, like I said, with the guilt and the shame and the worry and anxiety and all that. But the people that have a clear conscience, man, they're living free. They're not worried about anything. Check my background. Check my Friday night. Check my cell phone. That's how people with a clear conscience can be. says that this is what we're like. And read it again in verse 16. A clear conscience, good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. They will look like the one who is wrong. You ever had somebody be wrong to you and everybody believed it? You ever had somebody say, man, she, she's trashy. And you're thinking, no, I'm not. And everybody, yeah, you are. You ever had somebody say, man, he's a jerk. He is, he is a mean, rude, arrogant jerk. Nobody gets along with him. That's how people talk about men. And everybody else goes, yeah, he is. I mean, I've dealt with him before, too. I mean, that's just the way he is. That's our, that's, our, that's our phrase for men, isn't it? It's just the way they are. Y'all, when people start talking bad about us, everybody else shouldn't be able to jump on board. We should have a clear conscience. So when somebody tries to say something bad about Josh Green, everybody else is like, what? That's not the Josh Green I know. Y'all need to challenge me to have a clear conscience and a good conscience. Y'all need to start asking my kids what dad's like at home so that I can clean it up. We need to have a good conscience. And then lastly, number seven, and this is the, this is the icing on the cake, y'all. Christians think it is better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And I don't mean suffering for doing evil. I mean, in turn, doing evil. In our suffering, we would rather do the right thing and keep suffering than we would go retaliate. Look at verse 17. This is what it says. 
For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. This is the attitude of a New Testament Christian, of a follower of Jesus. If it's the will of God for me to suffer doing the right thing, then I'm going to accept it. And I'm going to persevere through this suffering. I'm not going to necessarily like it. It's not going to be easy. Hard times come. Tough times don't last. Tough people do. But I'm not going to run from it. And I'm not going to fight back. I'm not going to retaliate evil for evil. I'm not going to slander back. I'm not going to revile back. I'm not going to go and fight back. I'm going to realize that God must be taking me through this. I'm going to trust in the sovereign hand and the providence of God that He's got me in this situation and I will suffer here doing the right thing instead of trying to do evil, which is the wrong thing. This is the heart of Christians. Again, if you are treasuring up Christ in your heart, honoring Christ in your heart, the Lord as holy, then you will get this. But if you're not, then you won't. Some of y'all have even voiced before, I don't want to suffer. I don't deserve this. This is not fair. They shouldn't be treating me this way. And you'll go to whatever ends. That's not us. That's not us. I want to close by reading you this awesome passage. There's a book called Pilgrim's Progress written in the 1600s by John Bunyan. He's my favorite author. Here's the kids' version called A Dangerous Journey. If you have kids, please get this. Your kids will absolutely love it. My kids cannot get enough. We just finished the last two chapters last night. It's our second time reading through it. It is outstanding. It's a, it's a metaphor. The man had a dream, and he dreamed of what the Christian life was like. And so he's telling, telling the story of what his dream was like, and every character in the story is just a representation of things in life. The characters have names like ignorance and boastful. Those are the characters, people you meet. The main character is Christian, and so he's, the representative, he's representing Christians of what their life is like. And he's trying to get to heaven. And where he lives is the city of destruction, and he's trying to make it to heaven. And he ends up in this one place called Doubting Castle. Representing a state of life where you're full of doubt. You're unsure of yourself. You're unsure of God. It's Doubting Castle. And the one who lives in Doubting Castle is this giant horror guy who's there to kill them. And they're stuck there in the castle. And he's got them in chains and he's going to kill them. But Christian has found a friend on the road to heaven. Imagine that. And now they're in this together. Christian's friend's name is Hopeful. He has hope. Listen to this. The giant tried to kill them, but they didn't die. And he goes back to bed and his wife says, What? Are they still alive? They've nothing left to live for. So when you get up in the morning, you must tell them to make an end of themselves. The giant comes back to them the next morning and says, Your only way out of this place, he said, is by death. So why are you waiting? Make an end of yourselves. Why should you choose life, seeing that it is attended by so much bitterness and suffering? Very fitting to our sermon today. Christian, when he hears that, says, perhaps the giant is right. Remember, it's Doubting Castle. Perhaps death would be better than the miserable life we lead. Not everything is in the hands of the giant. Despair said hopeful, so hopeful answers back. This is what friends are for in our doubting. Who knows, but he may have another one of his fits and outbursts and forget to lock the gate. Let us not be our own murderers. The giant comes back to his wife and says, they are sturdy rogues. They choose to bear all hardships rather than make away with themselves. 
Then here's what you must do, she said. Tomorrow morning, take them to the castle yard and show them the bones and the skulls of those whom you have already dispatched. The next morning, the giant got up. He takes Christian and Hopeful to the yard. These, he said, pointing to the skeletons, were pilgrims just like you, who trespassed in my grounds. When I thought fit, I tore them in pieces, as within ten days I will do to you. Christian says, oh no, I can't take it, I'm not eating, I don't have food, I can hardly breathe here. Hopeful speaks up and says, my brother, the devil couldn't crush us when we encountered him. Neither could the valley of the shadow of death. And do you remember how you played the man in Vanity Fair? Don't forget that I am in this dungeon with you, and I am a far weaker man than you are by nature. This giant has wounded me as well as he has wounded you, and he has cut off the bread and the water from my mouth, and like you, I am deprived of light. So let us exercise a little more patience, and let us bear up as best we can, and keep on My kids weren't getting the full gist of that last night. But I was holding back tears. Folks, suffering comes. Sometimes life ain't fair. But our hope in God is strong enough that He knows what He's doing with us. The next morning, the very thing that Hopeful said could happen, happened. They found a key. They jiggled at that lock. The, the, the bad guy went crazy and they escaped and got back on the path, and they made it to heaven. If you're here today and you've been struggling with suffering and hardships of life, and you've been feeling sorry for yourself, or you've been thinking that you don't deserve it, or that God doesn't care, I hope that today put things in perspective. We have an identity stronger than our circumstances. We don't react with defensiveness. We live life to the fullest because we know God is not always going to bring suffering Christians are ready to explain why we have hope. Christians have a good and clear conscience. And lastly, Christians think it's better to suffer for doing good than to react with evil. May God today work in our hearts what it means to honor the Lord Jesus as holy. And may we be strong, strong in the world during suffering. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for 1 Peter chapter 3 in this passage on suffering. God, we need this type of hope, this type of strength, this type of life. God, help us to be those. Help us to be those who have understood the Bible. We have read, we have heard, we have listened to the preaching today. And so when suffering and trials come, we are ready to look hopeful to the world. We are ready to show that the anchor holds and we are ready to show that Christ is in our hearts. We don't want to retreat them the way they would expect us to. We want to show hope. God, here today, if there's anybody that needs You in that hope, would You work in their hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.